I could point to parks all over the country that are gorgeous, beautifully designed. They should be perfect, and they're not. There's something that, that hangs up, and those are places where you will never meet a stranger. Our goal in Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Centennial Park is to create a place where the region comes together. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Mark Wallace, President and CEO of the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy. Mark joins us today to discuss uh, his work on reconnecting Detroit uh, to its river. Mark, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. I know among the many projects that uh, you and the Conservancy have been engaged in over the course of the past several years, we are looking forward to Ralph C. Wilson Park on uh, Detroit's uh, western riverfront. This is a a project uh, that has been in the works for a couple of years now. Michael Van Valkenburg Associates with David Adjay and Limnotech, among others. You're planning on breaking ground in 2021. Do I have that right? Yeah, we're very excited. Uh, We should start moving dirt in the spring of next year. So... Uh, early 2021, we should start to see some progress out there. And when can uh, Detroit residents expect to have it opened uh, for their uh, for their benefit? It's about a two-year construction project, and a big part of this will be in partnership with the EPA. Uh, so some of it is a little bit dependent on the timing of our friends at the federal government. Obviously, uh, we're rebalancing the site, and we're letting a significant amount of water come from the river onto this site. So that's the complicated part of the project. As soon as we uh, have dug that hole, I can get, get back to you, but I'm guessing it's about 24 months construction project. Well, we'll look, we'll look forward to that. Uh, it is, as you mentioned, uh, a vast site, 22 acres, and it is an example of, I think, uh, the work that you've been doing with the Conservancy and other civic leaders in Detroit to bring landscape architects to lead the kind of urban future of the of the city. This is a site that's both large, but also quite prominent in the city's history. Is it a site that's particularly complicated, uh, contaminated? I mean, I'm sure it's got a, a very interesting and complex history. Yeah, in some ways it's a very complicated site. In some ways it's incredibly simple. Um, the site has very little topography to it, largely flat. It's almost a perfect rectangle. And uh, historic use was heavily industrialized. Some of it is built on fill. It used to be part of the river. The main constraint we have on the site is a train tunnel that goes underneath it to Canada uh, that connects uh, the American side to the Canadian side. So we need to be sensitive to that. And there's ventilation building on site. So we need to build around that ventilation building. Aside from that, it's a site that doesn't have a tremendous amount of history in the working knowledge of the community. Uh, Previous to this transformation, it was used as a a factory site, a printing press for the Detroit Free Press. And, you know, we've turned it into a very, very simple open space, largely grass and a little railing at the water side. This next transformation is going to be very significant. Prior to that, there was a creek bed uh, known as Mays Creek that connected from the Corktown neighborhood down to the riverfront. And pretty quickly, people realized that you could fill in that creek, cover the entire site with train tracks. So as of the late 1800s, it was almost, yeah, I'm guessing 95% covered with train lines and, and rail yards. So interesting site. It sits right at the intersection of Corktown and Mexican Town, which are two really fascinating neighborhoods in southwest Detroit. Um, Mexican Town obviously is nothing neighborhood that has a tremendous number of working uh, poor families. And Corktown is a place that's really up and coming. It's a great spot to find fancy food, but it's also got 40% of Detroiters living in poverty in that neighborhood. So both of those areas benefit from increased density compared to other parts of this city. And I think that density means we have a lot of families there, and those families in particular and the senior citizens will benefit 
greatly for having this park in the backyard. It strikes me it's uh, among the benefits of this east and western riverfront approach you and others have been championing that uh, unlike perhaps in other cities in a context like Detroit, it does distribute this amenity, these parks and open spaces to all, all manner of populations, different uh, diverse populations, different forms of community. So will the project, the, the Van Valkenburg scheme, include the daylighting of that creek that's a part of the, the project? So that's a separate project, but it's going to be done on largely the same time schedule. As many people know, Ford Motor Company recently purchased Michigan Central Rail Station. And if you're familiar with the history of Detroit or its architecture, or frankly, its blight, that's a building that you are familiar with. It was this beautiful, gorgeous structure sitting sort of outside of the downtown business district. Behind that, that train tunnel that I mentioned goes from the train station down to our site. So Smith Group JJR is doing the design for that project, and we're hoping to make a greenway trail very similar to the DeQuinder cut on the east side that will allow the residents to have that sort of DeQuinder cut experience getting down to the waterfront. You mentioned, Mark, the DeQuinder cut. Um, that was among the first projects that signaled in, in my estimation that uh, Detroit was serious about kind of rebuilding itself. This was now over a decade ago or more, if I remember right. Uh, tell us about that project and its genealogy. That, that, that project predates your leadership at the Conservancy, but obviously as a Detroiter long-term, you, you would have seen this project over some period of time. It does. And, and it, it predates my, my work on the riverfront, but certainly not my time here in Detroit. The Quintercut, I believe, was open in 2009. And I know that it was open the same year as the High Line. So we were, there were some leaders here in Detroit who were having similar thoughts about creating public space and providing the equity benefits that come from those investments. I knew the cut because I had a lot of friends in the arts community. And frankly, they used to go down there to, uh, to practice graffiti and practice their mural work. I remember a friend of mine, Bill Brown, is a filmmaker, almost you know, lived. It was like every day he'd go down to the cut and he drew a little map of you know, the different pieces that he saw down there. That space is a former train line that used to go from the northern suburbs Grand Trunk Rail Line all the way down to the riverfront. It literally turned a corner and went all the way to the Renaissance Center site today. Those tracks were removed around the same time as General Motors were making their investments in the Renaissance. The DeQuinter cut itself became significantly overgrown. As I mentioned, a lot of graffiti, a lot of homeless population living there. Yeah, not a lot, but, but some. And over time, its vision came together to create a, a low-grade uh, pathway. And uh, it's really become one of the most beloved spaces in our community. And it's amazing to see both the diversity of people who are coming down to the cut and also the way people are using it. A lot of people coming down for a walk, a lot of athletes come down for runs or jogs. We recently built a little fitness park there. So trainers are coming down to train people outdoors, particularly now that we have COVID, and that's a challenge that we're overcoming. And our team's done a lot to do small interventions to encourage people to stay in the DeQuinter Cut. So yeah, recently, we put a bunch of tree stumps out there so the kids could play around and have something to do as they're traveling through the space. A couple of years ago, we worked with the Knight Foundation, the Kresge Foundation, and others to build a site we call the DeQuinter Cut Freight Yard. It's built out of a series of old rail cars, train cars. And that space was designed by students from Lawrence Technical University, the University of Michigan, and high school students from Southwest Detroit. So they came up with the concept. The only design brief we had was create a place that encourages people to stay in the Quinter Cut. That was it. They came up with this beautiful spot that has food and beverage and restrooms, and DJ booths. It's really become a, a good spot for people to, to gather. At some point in time, and you as a longtime Detroiter could tell me more precisely, at some point, the media narrative shifted about Detroit. At some point, I don't know if it's in the last decade or two, at some point in the 21st century, 
Detroit is back. And given that you, Mark, have been in development and management and the built environment in Detroit for most of your career, I'd just like to ask you, what, what has your, been your experience of that shift of narrative, both how it's happened on the ground, but also how it's been communicated uh, elsewhere? That's a great question. I thought you were going to say, when did Detroit become sexy? That's what I was waiting for at the end of that <laughs> introduction. It's a good question I haven't thought about. Yeah, I moved to Detroit in 1999 and I worked as a high school teacher for three years. So and my initial interaction with the city was it's a very big space. It's a very isolated space. You know, through the eyes of my students and their parents, I, I realized very quickly that most of them were cut off from the opportunities that are provided in mainstream America, both geographically in terms of transit, in terms of access to cultural opportunities, access to recreational opportunities, it was a, there were places where it was very lonely and uh, very spread out. And I think that lack of density, which goes back to the fact that you know, we were built in an automotive context, has been the challenge that our community has been struggling with for decades. I'd like to say that the transformation of public spaces in Detroit has had an impact on the way we're perceived. But I think, frankly probably has more to do with our resilience, our grit, the innovation that comes out of Detroit, the arts and culture that come out of Detroit. You know, I, I think, you know, there's obviously been a, a desire by the millennial generation to, to do two things. One is live in urban environments where they're close to people and have access to new friends, new cultural opportunities, you know, new food, new beverage. You know, these are really high priorities. And the second thing that this generation is really focused on is making a difference and having memorable experiences. And I think Detroit checks every single one of those boxes. For a long time, the challenge was we did not have a place where you could work as you know, sort of a, a B-plus student from Michigan State University looking for your first job. Uh, it was a great spot if you had a master's degree. It was a great spot, you know, pretty good spot if you needed you know, sort of low-skilled work base, but it was not a great place for people to come who were starting early in their career. You know, Quicken Loans, Dan Gilbert, his investments have changed all of that. Um, and I think that he, his success in business has also attracted a lot of interest from other business leaders. You know, he has an almost full-time staff that welcomes people to town, takes them on tours. You know, if somebody wants to know about Detroit, his sort of famous answer is, I'm not going to tell you about it, you have to see it. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. When I try to tell the story of the riverfronts, you know, it's one thing to show pictures of people in crowds. It's another thing to take people down and you know just have them stand there and see people walking by. You get a much different sense of it. There's also a sense in which people love to watch a car crash and people love to watch an underdog story. Yeah, I'd say nationally, some people are hoping there's another car crash in Detroit. You know, sort of writ large in the city, and some people are rooting for the underdog. You know, we're we're rooty to some people, and we're a reckless IndyCar driver to others. But in either case, there's a fascination with Detroit. It goes back to Henry Ford. It goes back to music. It recently goes to Eminem. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot there. I'm interested, Mark, in your decision now, it's now six years ago, if I have it right, to, to join as a leader of the Riverfront Conservancy in Detroit. Tell us about that choice. So obviously, that was both a personal choice for you, but it was contributing to what was at that point presumably already evident in the leadership of the Conservancy, the role that it takes in reshaping the city. But what was at stake in that choice for you personally? The Detroit Riverfront Conservancy as an organization has always had a really special place in my heart. I came out of grad school at University of Michigan in 2000, I think it's 2003. I don't want to lie about that, but I always forget what year I came out of grad school. 
with a master's in public policy. You you were uh, busy. It's it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a while ago. And I had intended to go into education policy. And my, my interest was working with students. I couldn't find a good position in that world. And I had simultaneous to my graduate work, I had taken some real estate finance courses and I really enjoyed playing with numbers and I really enjoyed thinking about how to run a project to get you know to take something from you know one state and transform it into another state. There in some ways real estate transformation and the transformation you see in the education of young adults and kids, there's there's some through lines there in terms of my career. But I did. I worked in real estate for 10 years. And one of my first assignments was working as the assistant project manager on the East Riverfront Phase 2, which was a $32 million project that included a carousel and uh, and a bunch of little plazas and, and pathways connecting them. So I knew the riverfront and I really bought into the vision of that as an important place for our community. As a real estate person, I was always interested in the land that's adjacent to it. That's a totally different story because that there has been some development, but nowhere near what we expected when we started this work. And when I came back, when the position opened, my previous job had been a million square foot office building in Chicago, which is done, and you know, a 14 acre waterfront site in Toronto, which is under construction today still. I was interested in what the riverfront had become. And it was clear to me that the sense of ownership of the community members here in Detroit was just through the roof. My guess at that time was that few people would be able to tell you that the property was managed or built by the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy. But almost everyone in town would say, I love the riverfront. It's a special place. It's one of the best places in the city. I feel welcome at the riverfront. The riverfront belongs to this community. And for me, that as a platform was incredibly intriguing. The idea that we had built this place focused on the transformation. And we had set an organization that understood that the diversity of the people who come to the riverfront and the diversity of experiences of the riverfront was really paramount in terms of us measuring our success. And I've really been pleased that I've been able to build on that in terms of our community engagement processes. Uh, our team has done an amazing job on programming. And as the city becomes you know, a little more affluent, as there become more downtown jobs, and I think as new condos get built on the riverfront, this place has been just nailed so hard to the concept of welcoming and in diversity that if it ever starts to become a place where people don't feel welcome, you know, the community will rise up in, in a very good way and, and demand that, that it remain a, a very open and very inviting uh, asset. So that's been the exciting part of the job for me. I want to ask you about the role that designers play in this work. So, you know, unlike perhaps in some of your other roles, you're now, you know, at the helm of an organization that has played a, a really central role in curating some of the world's leading designers, in particular, a couple of the world's, you know, most, uh, I think, significant practicing landscape architects. Uh, you know, uh, the, I, we now regularly teach at the GSD, you know, uh, the Detroit Riverfront as one of our key case studies in a, in a city that's using landscape architects to reimagine its urban future. And in that regard, I think, Clearly, you had uh, both a hand in that, but also a point of view on that. So what does it mean for Detroit to have disproportionately brought some of the world's leading landscape architects to town to reconceive its waterfront? I'd I'd probably go back to my work with with Hines and the 10 years I spent working in real estate. And Jerry Hines was amazing for a number of reasons. But one is he loved good architecture. uh, And two is he loved efficiency of the spaces. And that combination really made that organization you know, incredibly valuable as an investment vehicle, but also um, just sort of demonstrated to the world that you could 
do well and do good at the same time. And I've, I've been blessed. The first part of the Riverfront was designed by Smith Group and you know, one of our sort of luminaries here in Detroit. And I think Smith Group did an amazing job of creating a place that immediately felt like somebody cared about it. It immediately felt a sense of permanence. Um, it felt open. The design had some elements that responded and, and I think sort of triggered emotions or feelings or memories in the minds of the visitors, which was really incredibly successful. We have an incredibly, you know, very strong, bulky railing system. We have a lot of colored concrete. You know, things that just sort of indicate that this will be here for a long time. When you're transforming a space that has been uh, blighted, it's been dangerous, it's been full of trucks and traffic and, you know, overgrown with weeds and broken glass, you need to send a, a key message like that. So I'd say my predecessors, Ray Nelson, Matt Cullen, and others who really led this project early on were really smart and that investing in the space and, and making it a little more stable, a little more established, a little better designed than perhaps people expected was a really important thing. When it came to the opportunity to transform Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Centennial Park, we knew that we wanted to build on a couple of uh, elements and a couple of the assets we have as an organization. And, and one is we wanted to build on a legacy of community engagement. So before we started our design competition, before we had talked about Van Valkenburg to anybody, we took a group of 21 community advisors on field trips to Philadelphia, New York, and Chicago to see some of the best parks that had been built in the past decades. And the 21 community advisors were intentionally, they were not city council members, they were not the self-appointed community liaisons or representatives who you see at every community meeting. We really tried to find uh, people who had strong friendship networks in their communities, um, but people who were perhaps not the usual suspects in terms of providing input. Because frankly, we knew that you know, the person who loves bikes is going to come to our community meetings and tell us that we need to have places to park bikes. We need to have, be part of bike system. We didn't need somebody to tell us that again. You know, we knew the people who were always advocating for fishing were going to come and tell us how important it is to do fishing. We wanted a little bit of a more sort of balanced perspective on what would make this park special. Back in 2003, when we started this work, my predecessors, Karen DuPerry, Faye Nelson, and others hosted over 100 community meetings before we started designing the East Riverfront. And I think that was really important for a number of reasons. One is the community had been promised so many things that had not been delivered, that there was a real lack of trust uh, in Detroit. And I'm guessing that's common to you know, many urban areas where visions are big and the ability to execute is, is limited. So the fact that we came to the community, we listened to them, we iterated our designs, we built what we said we were going to build generally on the schedules that we said we were going to build them on. I think that built a level of trust and that's the second thing that we were building on. We wanted to make sure that we could build with the community and that we could build, you know, we have integrity in terms of designing what we said we're going to and delivering what we said we're going to. So that community advisory group was really important for us. And part of the reason we took them on those field trips is because most people in Detroit, you know, they're not spending a lot of time in Philadelphia kicking the tires on other people's parks. So they weren't aware of what Fairmont Parks Conservancy is doing or what Groundswell had done, you know, with uh, Spruce Street Harbor. And, you know, just a lot of things that weren't in their wheelhouse. So that allowed us to really elevate our game in terms of our aspiration. And the feedback from that community team really became the brief of the design competition, which uh, ended up being a great success and led to the Van Valkenburg Agile team coming together. 
In that regard, uh, you've mentioned the Van Valkenburg and Adjay team, Ralph C. Wilson Park on the west side, uh, breaking ground next year, including in 2023 or a couple of years from now. Of course, on the east side, El Devine Paysagiste from Paris, Michel Devine, among, again, again, among the world's leading landscape architects. How did community uh, react to having you know offshore talent from Paris and Brooklyn? Yeah, that was interesting. So Michelle Devine partnered with uh, SOM out of Chicago to do a framework plan for the East Riverfront. And that, again, I think surprised a lot of people. You know, the East Riverfront in Detroit, if you haven't visited, or for folks who haven't visited, because I know you have, has a tremendous amount of vacant property. And it's really hard if you are a planner or a designer to not see that vacant property and immediately start to draw imaginary buildings on property that you know, is controlled by you know, long-term investors. Try not to say speculators, but long-term investors. It's really hard to not go in that direction. And what SOM did uh, after a couple iterations was, instead of focusing on one major big idea or these you know, sort of imaginary properties built, you know, buildings built on uh, other people's property, they really said, what can lock this place in as a special community asset? And one of the reasons we were able to do that is because Maurice Cox had just built an incredible planning team. So we knew that if any individual developer came forward with a bad idea, Maurice and Mayor Duggan and others would smack him on the head and say, you got to do better. This is a special place. This design needs to be special. So we, we had that as sort of a backstop, and that gave us tremendous flexibility and freedom to think about the public realm. So that, that was a really great project because the proposals in the East Riverfront framework were install bake lanes on Jefferson so that people can get down to the waterfront, build another De Quintercuts-like path on the east side, which the city just built to allow people to get to the waterfront, take a site that was going to be turned into a crappy apartment building, turn that into Robert C. Valade Park, which we've been calling Atwater Beach. Uh, instead of waiting for the developers on the Uniroyal site to make that final connection to Belle Isle, which is our Olmstead Park, uh, get that connection built as soon as humanly possible. I'll never forget sitting in it meeting with Mayor Duggan, and we said we were going to try to break ground on that in 2018. He looked at me and said, why can't you do it right now? And it was a great question. And that really opened the door for us to be able to uh, accelerate through that project. But Michelle Devine came and looked at that site, and that was a place where they really spent a lot of time uh, looking at the design. And I'd say the community was more excited by the system that we were proposing. They didn't really know that the designers were fancy, important people. And I think similarly with Van Valkenburg and Adjay, you know, Detroit doesn't have a lot of starstruck moments. And frankly, that may come from perspective or it may come from the fact that a lot of people are struggling with, you know, sort of basic needs and a lot of challenges in their day-to-day life. But if, if Michael Van Valkenburg had come in and proposed something that Detroit doesn't like, they would be, you know, they would not be shy at all about telling him, I don't like this. Who are you? Why are you telling me this kind of tree? Why are you telling me this path? This doesn't make any sense. And that's one of the delightful things about our community. I think if we were building this in New York, Boston, or Philly, or places where people do get starstruck, they might be more deferential. But Detroit is pretty unvarnished in its feedback. And Michael and David had come to play, and they have come with great ideas, and the community has really embraced those ideas. Are you concerned at all at this point uh, that the success of the riverfront will lead to the kind of speculation and gentrification that we see as a concern in so many other places? Or um, has the development on the private sector kept pace with your efforts uh, in the public realm? Yeah, it's an interesting context on the riverfront because for two reasons. One is when good designers come into new 
projects, they often look at, as you mentioned, the history of the sites and the history of the neighborhoods. And you know, frankly, it's an overused word, but people are looking to build on authenticity in the best case. You want to take what makes that place feel different and special. You want to amplify it, you know, shine a light on it. You don't want to you know, tear down your little corner store that everybody loves. You don't want the flower shop that everybody's been going to for 100 years to disappear. You want that old neon sign in downtown Chicago to stay up up and, and bright. And it's interesting, our, you know, our design competition on what became Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Centennial Park was, you know, the respondents were incredible. You know, we had 26 respondents. The, the final four were Walter Hood with West 8, GGN, Michael Van Valkenburg, um, and James Corner Field Operations. So we were just blown away by the quality of people that we had think about this. And, and we- that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty great list. It is. And we intentionally chose them because we wanted to get four different flavors. We wanted the community to be able to look at the different submissions to that competition and, and really be able to see different types of experiences there. And we got that. And several of those groups looked hard at the history of the site. And unfortunately, because the riverfront had been, on the East Riverfront, it had largely been emptied out when casino gaming was conceived. So some of the old uh, music venues, some of the old restaurants and bars, those had gone out of business because they were going to be transformed into casinos that ended up being in, in different locations. On the west side, yeah, nobody ever went to that site. <laughs> the only people who have fond memories of it are uh, people who worked for the newspaper who used to play softball a couple times a year. So you had 22 acres with a six, one, one single 60,000 square foot building on it and a couple of people playing softball a couple times a year in a site that should be welcoming over a million people on an annual basis. So there wasn't much to build on. And similarly, there wasn't much in terms of residential to be displaced. So, yeah, unlike places like New York or Philadelphia or Chicago, where some of these public realm projects are being implemented in places that have tremendous neighborhoods adjacent to them, in Detroit, I think the question is not how do we avoid displacing people? It's really a, a more proactive question, which is how do we make sure that the adjacent neighborhoods that do emerge around these spaces are open and accessible and that they don't become stagnant because they're just full of trust fund kids or they're just full of you know, employees at the Renaissance Center. We want to make sure that the residential that comes in here is every bit as exciting as the public realm that we've created, which is defined by that person. It strikes me in part the success that you're describing offers quite a contrast with previous eras of Detroit's uh, recuperation. I, th I think you mentioned the Renaissance Center. Obviously, it's a project you've had some, some involvement with yourself or the, the gaming industry and the notion of the destination kind of entertainment, recreation through casinos. Those building types, setting aside the, you know, the quality of, of their design, they do tend to be very inward focused. You know, I, I, I recall, you know, the, the Portman scheme for Renaissance Center and the notion of, well, Detroit is back by virtue of this enormous urban gesture, great rhetorical value and occupying an incredibly important site uh, downtown the waterfront, but quite fortress-like, right? I mean, in, in the casinos, similarly, of course, the, the new economy 
you know, replacing the old economy, but in this kind of inward looking, almost kind of island like archipelago like uh, urban form, had a tendency to take quite a lot of street life off of the street to kind of re- remove quite a lot of vibrancy from the sidewalk and the, the kind of, as you say, the kind of retail, the kind of pubs, the kind of bars, restaurants, the kind of nightlife, that kind of thing tended to be absorbed internally. Is, is, is that a fair reading of that history? I guess, I guess we're talking about the 80s and 90s at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and frankly, the three casinos that we have in Detroit right now, you can get to the parking deck of every one of those casinos without driving by an existing Detroit business, which is amazing. But in some ways, that's great. You know, we're not driving a lot of people past uh, you know, congesting these neighborhoods, but in other ways, you know, we're just literally shuffling people into parking decks straight into the buildings where they stay. And General Motors, their investment in the riverfront you know, needs to be celebrated. And not just because they were a huge um, believer and, and driving force behind what's happened here. Matt Cullen, who is our founding board chair, um, has been involved in raising every penny that we have put into this project and is really a visionary in terms of the system and in terms of what it means for the community and, uh, and the spaces, the impact that they can have. But General Motors, you know, built this riverfront plaza and immediately cut off the most valuable piece of their property donated that to a nonprofit organization that was less than 12 months old. That's an incredible statement. I, I, I could name other <laughs> corporate plazas around the country, you know, Los Angeles, and Miami, where it feels like a public space. But if there is a future owner of that tower who wants to put a fence around it, there's nothing to stop them from doing that. General Motors literally said, we're giving up control over this piece of the riverfront so that it will always belong to the public because there will always be this nonprofit steward who is focused on keeping this open and accessible. That's incredible. And, you know, they did other things too. You know, they built a fountain that had was initially intended to be sort of a sculptural element and little kids started coming down and playing in it. And instead of putting up a sign that says, Hey kids don't play in the fountain, General Motors literally transformed the entire plumbing system so that it would be treated water. So the kids could come down and play in it uh, and be safe. And it's become one of the, best locations anywhere on the riverfront. So it's amazing to see corporate leadership like that. And again, I attribute a lot of that to Matt Cullen, who was uh, the driving force behind the purchase of the Renaissance Center and the SOM transformation, which included taking down the, the, the wall in front of it and opening up the back to the public, uh, the water side to the public. It's an extraordinary story and uh, a remarkable investment, both in the public realm, but also in the in the institutional framework of the conservancy. I mean, it's an auspicious beginning for, as you say, a not-for-profit, the scrappy not startup not-for-profit that's 12 months old. You know, the, the question of privately owned public spaces have been with us for some time, obviously. And in the wake of Occupy and Zuccotti Park, of course, they're of renewed, uh, in some ways, perennial interest. And this, again, Detroit strikes me as just consistently providing these interesting alternative practices. There's something about the conditions, both the civic leadership, but also the the very different, the very specific conditions of um, both the quality of life there, but also the culture of the place that produces different outcomes. I mean, very often, you know, wonderful, very often kind of perplexing, but very different, absolutely specific compared to other other cities that we might find elsewhere. Well, I think in some ways Detroit has uh, opportunities that other communities don't. If I went to any other major city in the United States to try to find 22 acres upon which to build a Michael Van Valkenburg project on the waterfront, on a southern-facing piece of waterfront, on an international piece of waterfront, right? 
I, I would be paying tens of millions of dollars just to acquire the site. Um, I remember doing a tour in New York City with the Highline Network, of which I'm a member. And they took us to a project in Brooklyn and showed us a, a piece of property that they acquired for one of their one of the parks in, in the network. And they told us how much money they had spent to acquire it. And it just blew my mind. You know, and in some ways, Detroit has the same cost burden in terms of how much it costs to build things. You know, we're not going to have a cheap labor pool here. We have highly skilled labor and, and they're paid accordingly. But the basis to play and the ability to build systems, I think, is different here in Detroit. So, and, and I say that acknowledging that if the Conservancy had been founded two years before or two years later, we might not have been successful. Mayor Archer was involved in acquiring the property for the casinos. He was in support of the casinos being on the riverfront. That set the, set the table for some of the property to become part of the Riverwalk system. Mayor Kilpatrick was elected, and one of his major promises was the riverfront will not have casino gaming on it, and we're going to have a significant amount of public space there. So he started the Blue Ribbon Commission uh, with many others. But that you know, we, we hit just the right moment. And again, a lot of that comes down to Matt Cullen and his ability to assemble, you know, civic leadership, uh, some of the funding that came together and also the corporate leadership too. So, but you can go back to Hayes and Pingree in the 1800s. There are people who talked about the riverfront in Detroit being public space. In some ways, we just kind of hit it at the right moment. And in other ways, we had some visionaries who showed up at the right time. So, Mark, as you look forward, you've been in this in this role at the Conservancy for six years now. Important work already done. A lot, of, a lot of interesting work coming ahead. What are the challenges that you see in the work that you have, and and what what are the biggest obstacles that you're that you're facing going forward? Now, the glib answer is to say the biggest challenge is always money, but I don't think that's actually true. Detroit is an incredibly generous community in terms of philanthropy. Um, the number of people who have written us checks for a hundred bucks or 250 bucks this year is just through the roof um, because so many people are using the riverfront because they need to get out of their homes and it's become a really uh, place of sanctuary for our whole community. Yeah. And, and then in terms of major contributions, yeah, if you go to other cities, you'll be lucky if they're supported by the Knight Foundation and one or two other foundations. I'm really good friends with a lot of people in Philadelphia. And every time you go to a public space, it's William Penn and Knight, William Penn and Knight, William Penn and Knight, which is incredible. And their alignment and their ability to coordinate with city resources and leverage economies of scale is unbelievable. It's one of my favorite cities. They've done a terrific job with their public spaces. But in Detroit, we have Ford, we have Kresge, we have Kellogg, we have Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation, we have the Johnson James L. Knight Foundation, we have Chrysler, we have General Motors, we have DT Energy. We are just blessed with you know, both organizational philanthropists and individual philanthropists as well. I'd say the, the biggest challenge is really uh, ensuring that the spaces we've created continue to be places that break down those barriers. Feeling welcome in a space happens because of so many different things, you know, any one of which is probably almost invisible. You know, what the signage looks like, how the space is maintained, the flow of the pathways through the park. Who else is there? Who's running this space? Who's wearing an official shirt? You know, are your security officers in a vehicle or are they on bicycles? And it's going to be important for us to make sure that as we open a, a very significant signature space like Rousey Wilson Jr. Centennial Park, that we maintain this sense of welcome and invitation. Yeah, I think you know, sort of a sub-bullet to that, introducing people to the west side of the riverfront is also going to be a challenge because just like the East Riverfront back in 2003, 
the West Riverfront in 2022 is not a place that gets a lot of natural traffic flow. So what we learned on East Riverfront is you need to invite people down. You need that icebreaker experience, that first visit to be something that comes through the organization. You know, the easiest tricks to make that happen are to, to put out some good food or put out some good music and people will find it. But over time, we need to make sure that that space continues to be activated and sort of that the engine operates on its own once we get it started. It's interesting that you focus on the, that fundamental human question that you know, we, we all in some ways ask is, is this place for me? Am I welcome here? Do I feel not only in the engagement and consultation processes that you that even predate your, your tenure there, but, uh, but down to the level of the detail of design and you know, programming and who's present, who's represented in the space. I think that, I mean, the American city, we face so many challenges, uh, so many challenging aspects of the history of segregation, separation, you know, uh, racial violence and institutions that have been really instruments of separation and control and the notion of opening up public space and trying to learn, well, what are the cues that will make it available for people to feel a sense of belonging and welcome? Uh, that strikes me as a beautiful, a beautiful, you know, aspiration. That's right. And I could point to parks all over the country that are gorgeous, beautifully designed. They should be perfect. And they're not. There's something that that hangs up. There's something that makes them, yeah, it feels more like you're in Disney World than you're in a beloved public space. And those are places where you will never meet a stranger. You'll never have a conversation with somebody who's got a significantly different socioeconomic background from yours. And, you know, our, our goal in Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Centennial Park is obviously to create something that's very significant to the local population and a place where the region comes together. On the riverfront, we're amazingly blessed with it a population um, based on intercept survey work that is about 40% from the suburbs and about 40% from Detroit, which makes it an incredibly unusual place in the context of our city. And I think an incredibly unusual place in the context of the country, about 20% coming from far outside of our region. But if you look at the design of Ralph Wilson Park, there are a lot of things we're doing that don't seem that radical or that aggressive, which really are. When we build a playground, we intentionally, you know, we're designing it with Monstrum out of Copenhagen, so we have terrific designers, these iconic elements, but we've intentionally designed it so it won't feel like you're going to a theme park. It's not designed to, you know, do the brown bear slide and then move on to the next thing. We built it so you can spend a lot of time hanging out with the bear and doing things around the bear. We built it so that parents would have a line of sight to the children, but parents wouldn't have to helicopter around behind their children so that kids can explore what it means to you know, be observed and feel safe because their parent or guardian is around there, but not have that sort of you know, hypervigilant experience, which I think is actually bad for childhood development and cognitive function. We're building a, with Sir David Ajay this incredible sports pavilion, which will have some major basketball features in it, which will send a message to any teenager in Detroit that you're welcome here at Ralph Wilson Park. Most parks being designed in, in the world, I'd say right now, are not thinking primarily about being welcoming to teenagers, particularly in poor communities. So these look like simple things, but they're not. The ability for Detroiters to get their feet wet in the Detroit River, you know, it's a remarkable thing. There's something magical about that, that power connecting to a natural resource like that. You know, the, the number of Detroiters who know how to swim is 
appallingly low, and this would be a place where we have swim programs. So, I, you know, a lot of these things, oh, yeah, it's a place where you can splash around. Oh, it's a place where you can play basketball. Oh, yeah, it's a cool playground for the kids. But it's much more than that because of the intentionality that Michael and our team have brought to the design and because of the quality of thought that David brings to, to what he does. So pretty excited about it. And hopefully um, this becomes a place where people are attracted because of the quality of the space. And when they get there, those barriers, um, those social barriers that have plagued our country for generations start to break down. This could be a place where people start to make relationships. Yeah, and as an adult, there aren't that many places where you can do that. So we're very hopeful, very hopeful for the future. Mark Wallace, thanks so very much. Thank you very much. Great talking. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilmore, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit fotac.gsd.harvard.edu.